I tend to write a lot from dark places about dark things because it's a way I've learned to get those things out of me. And putting something on a page, be it a letter, be it a poem, be it a song, is an incredibly powerful way to get those dark things out of you. Where are the answers I see? Where are the hopes I need? Answer this for me. Help me to believe. Welcome, Plain Ordinary Dragons. Happy Holidays whichever one or ones you celebrate. I feel holidays and special occasions should always be celebrated because they give us another chance to remember and enjoy each other. I mean, I'm not Jewish, but I'm happy to celebrate or support Hanukkah. I'm not Christian or pagan, but I love to celebrate Christmas and winter solstice. I feel I could be getting into another controversial topic here, so before I veer too far off the beaten path, I'm going to hold off before the 14 people who listen to this show suddenly become a total of nine. However, let me try to rephrase the idea where I started, which is this. Whatever your celebration in life is today, or most any day of the year, I wish you all the best, and I celebrate with you. As always, thank you so much for spending some of your precious time with us today. We get to speak with an Irish songsmith today. His name is David Hope. I first met David in 2014 at a songwriting camp. We sat together a few times during lectures and bantered a bit of small talk back and forth. We played some music in the same circles at camp. However, like so many of my friends from that time, we became more tightly bound friends as we kept in touch over the years. Let me tell you some of the things that I think about when I think about David Hope. I think about his work bringing music to the children and the elderly in hospitals and convalescent homes. I think about his song, Someone Else's Mind, which I believe is one of the most amazing songs ever written about the struggles we have in our minds. If you haven't heard it, I challenge you to go to the show notes right now and take a listen. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. I think of what an honest and genuine and gentle soul he is. Oh, and he's a damn fine songwriter and singer, too. Since he is from Ireland, it would be impossible for us to stay away from politics, at least for me, in this conversation. But hang on, because even though we do talk some politics at the beginning, we find out from the conversation what binds us together is so much stronger than what separates us. Let's listen in. Today, I want to welcome David Hope. Uh, David, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure. I, of course, introduced you in the, uh, in the intro to the podcast, but to let everybody know, uh, you and I met back in 2014 uh, at Steve Earle's Camp Copperhead. Uh, many mm-hmm. of our guests met there, <laughs> at, there. That was kind of a magical experience for most all of us who attended. So many amazingly talented people, and you were one of those. Uh, I, I remember specifically, for anyone that doesn't know, that year was the first year that Steve... Uh, had done the camp, the songwriting mm-hmm. camp. And so it was new for everybody. I remember we got there, I think it was, uh, I can't remember if it was, I think it was Monday night. And Steve said, everybody's going to do an open mic. And I wasn't prepared to do an open mic that night. And I don't think anybody that went that night was really prepared to do it. Mm-hmm. And so then we ended up, you know, sitting there and watching everybody play. And I'll never forget when you got up, uh, because Caroline introduced you and, uh, 
she in in she said and now i'm introdu introducing our gentle giant david hope <laughs> and you looked at her and you gave her this great reply and you said what makes you think i'm so gentle <laughs> it was amazing it was an amazing moment uh, and and the music it was amazing and so forth and so when i started uh, doing podcasts you know there i wanted to bring the normal people on the show. I, I was wanting to do a show that was not the Bill Gates of the world or, or the, you know, or the presidents of the world or anything. I wanted to just have conversations with real people because I, I really believe that everybody has their own special uniqueness. And if we highlight that, then maybe we bring everybody together a little bit more. So mm -hmm. uh, let's just start at the beginning. Now, now you're from Ireland, correct? That's right. Yep. Um, born and bred. Yes, indeed. Indeed. So what uh, what was it like growing up in Ireland? Well, um, very typical because I, I knew nothing else. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Um, that's fair. Yeah, I'm um, pretty, yeah, pretty typical, but I suppose pretty unique in an Irish context as well. In so far as the town where I come from is a town called Shannon in County Clare, and in an Irish context, it's an extremely new town which was only in existence since the 1950s. And the reason for that was, it's, it's quite interesting and ties in a lot with America actually, which is, which is probably where I got all my musical influences from and in some way came over in the wind. But um, just opposite where we're living is the estuary of the Shannon River, which the town is named after, which is the longest river in Ireland. It's about the 474th millionth shortest river in the world, but it's the longest river in Ireland. Basically just opposite across the river from where I'm sitting right now is a place called Foynes. And Foynes was the original site of where the first flying planes coming from America or going to America landed because it was a wide open delta. If you can imagine that kind of picture of, we, we call it an estuary, but a, de a delta, the same thing. And that's where the first airport was in the West of Ireland. It was in, um, in Foynes. And as such, when just before the advent of jet powered planes and i'm sorry i'm rambling here but uh shannon was chosen as a, as a greenfield site just at the opposite side and foines is in county limerick and just north of county limerick is county clare where i'm from and shannon was this was the site was chosen so basically they built an airport and they built what became an industrial estate and they built a town out of nowhere and which is a very unusual thing in ireland i know in the states it's quite it happened you know at the turn of the, the, the this 18th century or what it was everything was new and everything came out of nowhere but if, in ireland it, it was a very new thing and as such um everybody from the town came from somewhere else within ireland pretty much you know like my mom and dad are both from connacht which is north of here the province north of here and uh they met in london and got married and came back because there was jobs in Shannon and literally everybody in our street here are all from different places originally. So let's say my brother, who's 15 years older than me, he, he would have been kind of the first generation of people born in the town. And as a consequence, it's, it's looked down upon in a ways that we were not really part of the county, which is nonsense, but it's cool that it didn't have the small town kind of hang-ups, if you understand me, whereas every other town has a main street, has their thing going back, and every family knew everybody else's family and everything like this. Whereas in Shannon, it wasn't like that. Everybody kind of came from all over the world to different from different places, different parts of Ireland, and created a town out of nothing. So it was 
very typical Irish upbringing, but a very untypical one in that sense. That's so very, there's, the, there's the longest answer to a question you've ever had in your life. I, <laughs> I love long answers, man. And please feel free to ramble on. That's interesting to me. I, I did not know that. Uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not up on my Irish history as much as I would like to be, but it almost sounds like what you're saying is, is that that's kind of like the, a melting pot of Ireland mm-hmm. in some, in some respects, yeah. uh, which is looking at it from a, a U.S. or United States perspective, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's kind of how this whole country came about. It's a, a melting pot of diversity and so forth. So I, I can kind of feel like there could be some similarities in in that particular respect. Mm-hmm. Now, I've always fantasized about Ireland. I've never made it there. Uh, and, and that's probably because so many of my musical idols have idolized it themselves. When we're talking about Steve Earle, he talks a lot about going over to Ireland and writing his albums there and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, talking about, you know, looking over Galway Bay and just the atmosphere uh, in the pubs and how it's more of a family atmosphere than like the bars that we have here in the U.S. And so that's all very fascinating to me. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I guess that's really where my question came from is, you know, what was it kind of like to to grow up there? Because uh, it's very different than our experience, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, now, you did say that you had an older brother. I guess uh, you, you have a, a number of siblings. I have one brother and one sister. You're both older than me. So I, I'm the baby, the, the biggest one of the lot, but the baby of the family. Yeah. I got you. How, <laughs> how was uh, how how were your uh, your years, your schooling years, uh, you know, like uh, high school and, 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 and maybe university if you decided to do that? What, what was that like? Was there because my understanding of uh, when I was growing up, there there was uh, some Protestant versus Catholic uh, <laughs> sort of raging going on. I think that a lot of people today, a lot of people younger than me, uh, I'm in my 40s, uh, mm-hmm. probably don't remember that uh, the way that I do uh, because it was on the news all the time. And yeah. there was just the, that, you know, anybody that studies his, history will understand that. But uh, a, a lot, probably a lot of people in my audience don't, um, mm-hmm. don't remember that clash that was going on between the Catholicism and and Protestantism at that time. Mm -hmm. And so were you, when you were growing up, was there a lot of that uh, tension uh, still uh, going on or was that in a different part of Ireland that I'm not aware of, or does it still linger to to this day? Yeah, it's, there's, there's an awful lot of, of answers that I could give on that front. And um, a lot that I wouldn't be educated enough to give um, or qualified enough to give. But yeah, again, in, in that context, Shannon was was um, was quite a unique place. The, the the focal point of most of the troubles was in Northern Ireland, which is the, the six counties. So I'm from the south southwest of the country. And in the northeast is, is where Ulster is, which is where, where the troubles is what they came known. Basically, back in the day, for people who don't know, I'm sure people do know, the English colonized Ireland and the the compromise that was agreed upon in the 1920s was in 1915 sorry and subsequently in the 20s was that what is now the republic of ireland are in the south largely in the northern part the six counties in the north were remained part of the uk and part of britain and as such you have the conflict which is painted in the clothes of of catholics and protestants and nationalists and royalists and um in the 1970s, it, it it was going on a long time. This is going back to the, the, the famine times in, in, in the early 1800s. Um, but in the 70s, it kicked off pretty pretty badly and, and very violently. And a lot of people lost their lives, both in Ireland and subsequently through the IRA in the UK with bombing campaigns and terrorism, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And 
when I grew up in the 80s, it was still very much there. And, and as I said, the unique thing about Shannon was a lot of people from Belfast in the north actually came to Shannon and moved here. So Shannon was kind of like little Belfast, as they used to call it. So we had a lot of people here from the north. And in school, there was lots of northern accents and things like that. But in apart from that, it really had very little effect on my upbringing personally and the majority of people in our area and in the south in general we all know about it we all know what happened but when you actually see it firsthand my brother-in-law is from belfast and the first time i went up to belfast was in early to mid 2000s let's say maybe 2001 was the first time and different experience didn't live there didn't know about it i knew i I knew about it but i didn't know about it if you know what i mean sure and um you hear about it you read about it but until you you experience something and you you know the old saying is you know don't judge a man until you walk a mile in his shoes and it's a very true statement you know we were down here in the south and it was a long way from there, really. It could have been the other side of the world for all we we know about it growing up as kids, apart from what you'd hear in the news, you know. Um, that's not to say it hasn't it didn't inform our upbringing. Of course it did, because, you know, you kind of grew up and, you know, everybody says you hate the English. We don't hate the English, but we have a rivalry with the English now, the same as the Scots do, the same as that. But up there, it's a little bit raw. And thankfully, in the last the last 20 years, there's been relative peace in the North, which is great. And um, the Good Friday Agreement, you probably heard of that, which was helped broker by Bill Clinton and a number of Americans as well, um, has been a very, very good thing and a positive influence on the North. If you go up to the North now, to Belfast, it's a fantastic city to go out in. And Derry as well. They're fantastic places. And they're very much part of Ireland, but they've got that, as you said, the Protestant thing and the the, the you can see the red brick houses. It's, it's very reminiscent of Northern England as well, you know. Um, but it's, it's a great place. And... Um, Unfortunately, with Brexit, um, it started to reveal some of the cracks in the the peace process. Um, I don't know how much you know about Brexit and things like that. Well, I I keep abreast of those things. However, unfortunately, uh, I think there has been a rise in nationalism across Mm -hmm. the world, of which our current president is a key player or has been a key player. Mm -hmm. And so... uh, I think we're more keenly aware of it because of how high his profile has been in regards to his criticism uh, about things along those lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I am interested actually to talk about those particular pieces if you want to. What has that been like for you guys with the Brexit thing going on? And I mean, it seems like there's always a new deadline and something happening <laughs> where they're trying to figure out how to... Put things well, together. As, as I said at the top of my last long-winded answer, I'm neither qualified nor, um, you know, suitably um, political or, 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 or thus-minded to, to really have a cogent argument about about it or to talk about politics in general or to, you know, I I, I know enough to, to get myself into trouble, as you say, you know, <laughs> something like that. But um, yeah, like for better or worse, Ireland is very much, we're, we're part of Europe, that's for sure, but we're, we're also very much tied to both the east and the west of us in terms of america and in terms of england and and the uk to the point i I suppose you know american politics does tend to dominate global politics for better or worse as i said it's it it is a shame that it has to be like that when when you've got somebody like trump in office because it's just nonsense i'm sure you're sick to the eye teeth of him um i i know i am listening to him um but yeah brexit is, is is just something that they decided to pass legislation to leave the eu and it's completely backfired and you know half the country don't want it half the country do and the british it's you know the british have always had this kind of thing of you know 
well, you know, we'll saw our own arm off just because we can, you know, and we, this is what we've decided and we're going to do it when, when every every possible marker is telling them, don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. And the, the only the only real complication in the whole thing is it was it was voted through without ever a consideration for the Northern Irish situation. And again, for those of you who are listening who might not know that, it's just on the island of Ireland, there's always been a um, free travel. There's no, there is a border, but since the 80s, really, it hasn't been a, a functioning border. And definitely into the 90s after the Good Friday Agreement and, and since 1995 to the present day, it's, it's, there's no border that exists. It's, it's on a map, you know what I mean? Uh, and also there's always been free, since the, tw- the 20s, there's always been free travel between the constituents of the UK and Ireland. And in the UK, you, in the EU, as an EU citizen, it's the same as going from state to state in America. You don't have to have a passport to travel in borders and stuff like that. It's, it's all open. So the complication is now that if um, from a tax point of view of movement of goods and services and things like that, as well as passports, and the border now on the island of Ireland is under jeopardy because if the six counties in the north are still part of the UK, but they're technically within the island of Ireland, which is part of the EU, then it becomes so... As I said, it started to kind of create a little bit of violence again, which has been very small. But again, it's, as you said, the rise in nationalism, people, you know, starting to, to, to rear those ugly moments. And, and, you know, who the hell needs it? Who wants it? Nobody. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'm. I, I think it's an understatement to say I'm not a big fan of our current administration, mm-hmm. but I also try to realize that, you know, from, from my perspective here in, in the U.S., there are a lot of people who supported him. And so mm-hmm. I, I try to straddle the line as best I can by not being disparaging and, and so forth. Uh, but there are a lot of frustrations that a lot of us have with the current administration. Mm-hmm. But more so than that, uh, and again, I'm not any more qualified to talk politics than anyone else other than the fact that my perspective counts just like yours does. <laughs> we, we experience these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm afraid that we're all sitting on a powder keg. <laughs> and, and, and I, <laughs> Because if we can't figure out how to resolve things peacefully, the next step is is scary, um, uh, especially with the firepower that we've been able to create in the last uh, you know hundred years. So, yeah, it is it is kind of uh, from from my perspective as an outsider, um, I find myself kind of with this creeping anti-American sentiment, which is a a position I never thought I'd ever think in because. You know, growing up so much um, of the the culture of America, you know, the Kerouac to the Blues Brothers to John Lee Hooker to, you know, all the everything I love about America, you know, all of that stuff, the movies, everything. It's just, but when I went over to Camp Copperhead when we were there, like it was just, you know, I, I wanted to get on a Greyhound bus. I've always wanted to do that, just drive around America. And now I don't kind of, I, I kind of don't want to go not the way it has been for the last four years. Do you know what I mean? And it's just, which is really sad, you know, because I, I love nothing more than to hop over and start driving around and, and, and meeting people and talking to people. But it's just kind of, it's it seems that little bit scary at the minute. I know that sounds like I'm being some sort of, as you said, lefty liberal or something like that. I'm not, you know what I mean? But it's just like, I'm kind of going, do you want the hassle? And like, I don't, I don't think it's about Republican. I, I don't think he has anything to do with it. I think he's a very orange cherry on top of a cake. And 
uh, people voted for him, but did they really vote for him? I don't know. I, I really shouldn't get in talking about politics or anything like that. But <laughs> We won't del- delve into the politics piece of it. Um, but I was curious, actually, what the there is a difference between what we see in media, what we see coming Absolutely, from yes. not only mainstream media, but also these outlets on either side that push their own agendas mm-hmm. there's a huge difference between that and the reality of people to people uh, on, on the ground yeah uh, we're much we're much more the same than we are different I 100 percent. and I, I, as i said i remember sitting around the campfires up in new york state that time and there was guys there from the deep south and from texas and all across every you know the most liberal guys from new york city and you know you had a sheep farmer from australia you had a guy from ireland here a couple of guys from ireland guys in the uk and you know politics wasn't an issue we were talking about songwriting guitars and we were sitting out in nature drinking beer mm-hmm. and at the end of the day when you're when you're doing that it doesn't matter no, nobody's polit- political views come into play you know everybody's a human being and they're all sitting around enjoying it left right down the middle whatever you want and that's that's the way it should be and as i said you know my, my comment earlier on about you know it's scary now and go i'm sure if i went to the states and like any time i've been to the states before i've had the best of times mm-hmm. and met the best of people and you know, Americans are very, very friendly and open and warm and welcoming. And that's all I've ever experienced firsthand. And as I said, it was kind of more to the the thought of it not being like that kind of worries, you know, I think people on the outside looking in and, you know, I hope I hope we can kind of steer away from that because, you know, as as this whole pandemic has shown, life is too short. You know, when you're all cooped up, at, you know, in your respective homes and stuff for so long, you, you don't want to have to think about closing off the world. You want to get out there and run around, you know. Absolutely. And and I want to get in, into your music a little bit, but I'm, I'm kind of curious. Why did uh, why did you end up? What's what steered you towards being an, uh, a, a songwriter and an artist? Uh, why did you choose that path? How did how did you get there? <laughs> yeah, I wish I knew. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd have gone back and had a good long talk with myself about my career choices. And like that. I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I I've always been you know a big fan of music, and I, I again I, I mentioned my my older brother and sister, and I remember I always kind of go back to this. My I think it was for my sister's. Eight, she's nine years older than me, and. Um, she got, I think it was for her 18th birthday. Could have been for her 21st, but I think it was her 18th birthday. She got a collection of Atlantic Records, 1954 to 1974. I think it was something like that, or 1957 to 77, something like that. And it was just, you know, filled with the coasters, you know, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, you know, all these amazing artists. And I was only nine years old. And like previous to that, it was Paul Simon there. Simon and Garfunkel, it was the Beatles, stuck in a car listening to those kind of things, Dr. Hook. And, you know, just listening to that kind of music, just, I don't know, I, I always loved it. I don't know why. And as I said, I, I tried playing piano when I was a kid, didn't like it, didn't like the lessons. I wasn't very good at it. And when I was, I think, you know, nearly 16, I started playing the guitar and it just seemed like a kind of a natural progression to try and write songs. And thankfully, yeah, I, I, I'm very lucky that I write songs, I think from a mental health point of view, it's it's been an incredible friend to me and an incredible tool with dealing with life. Because, you know, life is, is hard, whether it's not or, you know, where you think it's not. And we, I suppose in Ireland, we, we kind of adopt an attitude, sure. It could be worse. We say that, we say that a lot. 
And I remember uh, I play a lot of music in Switzerland and I have a great friend who runs the label I'm on over there, Toby. And I remember saying that to him, you know, my, my, uh, my dad passed away a couple of years ago and um, we, we always come up with these generic kind of phrases like, ah, sure, could be worse and things like that, you know. And, and he, he turned around and he went, no, it's, it's not. It, it, it's, it's, it's your business, it's your problems and they're very valid. And, you know, it, it is true. But, yeah, songwriting has, has been a great help to me and, you know, that's 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 why I continue to do it, and whether I'm any good at it or not is debatable. But I keep trying. <laughs> it's not debatable. You're, you're a great songwriter. Uh, you you are a really great artist. I um, I, and I I can I can I can tell you that with with full authority um, <laughs> because I have shared your music with other people, and you know sometimes that doesn't make it back to the artist, and especially with everybody not being able to be out and seeing shows and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you do beautiful things with turns of phrases. In fact, your song "Someone Else's Mind" mm-hmm. may be the the most well communicated song i have ever heard in regards to uh, mental health and uh, understanding someone else's you're so good at that the the, the way that you talk about the, the way that you're able to take someone and put them in that feeling not even just the lyrics but you're able to put them into that feeling of kind of being there uh you know especially with that song um mm-hmm. it's it's one of the best i have ever heard uh hands down um it is an amazing tune and i don't say that lightly <laughs> um and, and, you know I, and I'm, I'm not blowing smoke it's a great song i've i've never heard one uh that uh, elicited i i it brings me to tears um the, the way you talk about uh in that song shaking somebody's hand and then getting into the car and then and then hearing the devastation later we've mm. all we've all felt those kinds of things and so the ability to do that you know that's that's what makes in my opinion music magical as it allows us to to bind together and i know people that listen to my podcast have heard this a million times <laughs> and they'll probably hear it a bunch more but the most important thing that i thought steve earl ever said was when he was talking about Uh, songwriting and being empathetic and he said as a songwriter your job is empathy 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 what you're really doing is you're just saying this you're raising your hand high and saying this is how I feel and if you feel this way too you're not alone Mm -hmm. and you do that really well so it's not debatable in my book you can debate it all you want (laughs) but you're a phenomenal you're a phenomenal artist you really are another thing about Irish people we don't take compliments very well so uh... (laughs) We, we'd all, we, what, we, we, what we'd always say is, uh, fuck off, would you? You know what I mean? It's just kind of <laughs> but, but thank you. I, I will take the compliment. I don't, I, I don't, I, I'll question your uh, sanity, but I'll take the compliment. <laughs> well, but yeah, like, go. It, 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 I suppose, you know, for better or worse, I'm a miserable fucker on, on record. And, and I, I had a, a teacher, um, I, I, I never really had him for any classes apart from, the first, you know, when you try out things in high school, the secondary school, as we call it, I tried out woodwork and I wasn't very good at it. So I decided not to do it. But he was the teacher and uh, he's kind of he looked like he looks a bit like um, Gandalf he had kind of with a ponytail. This guy, his name is, is Mike Scanlon. And uh, we, we had had him a couple of years later in a, in a kind of a gap year, which is we call transition year. He kind of took us for drama class and uh, I kind of got to know him a little bit then. But I got to know him properly when I went back as a kind of a. 
I, I, I did a little stint as kind of Jack Black in School of Rock, where I used to go back to my local high school and, and mentor some bands and things in about 2004, 2005, and really enjoyed it. And I got to know a lot of the teachers afterwards. You know, when you're in school, you kind of think a teacher a certain way, and then you meet them in real life, and you realize that, you know, they're normal people and, and good fun and things like that. And I remember he turned around to me one day, and he's got a very a very thick Irish accent like this, and he said, because I was I was listening to your your album there, Dave. He said, you know, and he goes, you know, if, if I didn't know you, I'd be fucking worried about you. He said, because <laughs> you know, Christ, your songs are so depressing. He said, like you know, because if I didn't know you, I'd be worried about you. And I've had that a lot because you know, when I'm with people, it's it's not an act. I I'm generally a fairly friendly person, and as we'd say, good crack most of the time. But uh, you know, when I tend to write. I tend to write a lot from dark places about dark things because it's a way I've learned to get those things out of me. And putting something on a page, be it a letter, be it a poem, be it a song, is an incredibly powerful way to get those dark things out of you and help unburden yourself. And I think men in general are very bad. Women have a much better social network and an ability to talk to other women about their problems. Men don't generally. And it's something that we're getting better at and it's being talked more about. And that's brilliant. But we need to keep do more and do more. And as I said, I, I, I consider myself very lucky. Uh, I probably wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for writing songs. You know, the guy I started writing songs with the, from this transition year, he killed himself when we were, I was 21, he was 20, you know, he was my best friend and we started writing songs together. And that was kind of part of someone else's mind is in reference to that. And, you know, a lot of that is, is you know, I, I, too much drinking and too much songwriting. And I think sometimes it's a selfish thing that I don't want to really engage with it until I've written something good about it. So it's, it's like, uh, you know, you, take something bad and try and turn it into something good. And I, I don't know any other way to deal with life or things like that. And yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's why my songs are so depressing. Things like that. You know, I think that that's, uh, that's a great thing. Um, I, I love songs that are depressing. Mm -hmm. That's the way I write my songs too. Uh, my songs are always depressing uh, or most of the time they are anyway, but there's always a sliver of light at the end of the tunnel in the ones I write. So I always feel like at least, at least I may be getting that stuff out, but there's just a, a little bit of hope at the end of the tunnel there. And hopefully that's what people will latch on to. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes it, that's not the case. I, I've had people say similar things to me before. I, I had a boss <laughs> one time and I, I, I recorded some, uh, like what would be considered an EP. I never released it, but I just, I wanted mm -hmm. to get some of my tunes down. And so I gave it to my boss who um, I had some musical conversations with. A couple days went by and I didn't hear anything back from him. And we worked together. So I saw him every day. Um, and then a week went by and two weeks went by. And so at, uh, week three, I went to him. I'm like, man, did you have a chance to even listen to the songs? Uh, is it just so bad you didn't want to tell me? Because that's fine, too. I'm good there. And he's like, well, it's not that, Elliot. It's just that. And he was a Marine. Uh, yeah. he, he was like, it's not that. It's just that your songs are so sad and depressing. I was like, I get my, my revolver out, start cleaning it. And I was like, oh, geez. Okay, I didn't realize that was so dark, uh, but no, no. I can just picture you knocking in his apartment door. Have you seen Randy? I gave him an EP two weeks ago. We heard a shot about ten days ago. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I, maybe that I had I had never delved into that very deeply, but maybe that maybe how come I didn't release anything publicly uh, until recently. Um, but, the, but you have to, you have to though you have to do it and get it out there. And like as I said, you you know you always struggle with that. Will people listen to it? And like I I still struggle with that all the time. But when you get back to it, the music I love is is that kind of music. You know, listening to Leonard Cohen or Tom Waits or some. You know, they just drag you down, and it's brilliant. And it's kind of I, there's glory in the sadness, and it's it, I, I find that. But some people, some people can't engage like that. They're going to go, "Oh my God, this is depressing. It's making me depressed." And I'm going, "What's wrong with you? This is so uplifting." You know, li- listening to Nick Cave songs, you're kind of going, "But that's so, you know what I mean?" But I guess it's just that's why we're talking. We're on the same kind of frequency, I suppose, about it. You know, if I hadn't had that song my old friend the blues mm-hmm. uh, when i was in high school i don't know what i would have done that song just spoke to me i mean you know when we start talking about the worth of 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 somebody's music mm-hmm. um you know and and there's there's i i personally believe artists are hugely undervalued their their music is undervalued uh you know 99 cents for a song is uh crazy uh, because I, I would pay a hundred times that for my old friend the blues mm. it meant that much to me throughout my my lifetime every time i had a, a breakup where i thought oh my god i'm not gonna survive i would listen to that and just you know that that guitar rift would just bring me into a place where i'm not alone even though i'm all alone yeah. and so i'm all for the dark music not no, the movies <laughs> but the music. But it's, it, it is amazing though the power of music like that you know what i mean and as you said you know you go through those teenage years and you're listening to songs and every every you're hanging on every phrase every word means something to you depending on who you're in love with that week and you know what i mean and it's just it's so it's it's it's, it's fantastic art is yeah it is it's it is very undervalued and as i said it's it's um yeah, it's 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 depressing to think about the future of music because of the way it is going, and how it's going to continue to be monetized and and, and supported. And I don't know. I've been wrecking my head trying to figure that out for a, a long time. But pretty much the last five or six years have kind of gone another level again. You know, of of I, I was ta- you were talking last as I said with Lee, and you were, he was talking about releasing his first record and, and, and shopping it around to people, you know, that was the, the early two thousands. I think he was saying that he released his first mm-hmm. um, record. Is that right? You know, and like even, yeah, like I think my first, my first recording first album was 2005 and it was still thought of as, okay, you, it, Napster was the thing and, and free downloads were the thing and how to avoid that. But there was still the remnants of a traditional record you know, business, you know, you, you got to try to get a label, you try to get signed, you try to do all this. And and I, again, the point you made, I, as I said, when I was listening back about everybody, it's great, everybody can make a record, but the problem is everybody can make a record. And I remember years ago, um, T- Terry Woods from the Pogue saying that to me when we worked together in, in 2007, he was saying that, you know, back in the day when somebody signed a record contract, at least one other person had to thought, had to think that it was good. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, in, enough to invest in the album, whereas now there is no quality control. And even more so now with all the technology that we're blessed with to have, you know, this laptop I'm talking to you on is beyond any studio they could have thought of in the 80s, let alone the 50s. And unfortunately, as a consequence, there's no quality control 
everybody has a voice, but nobody has a voice and everything is out there, but there's no value on it. And it's, it's, it's really depressing and sad to think about it, you know? Oh, I completely agree. It's something <laughs> I've been trying to wrap my head around for a long time. I mean, I don't, my living doesn't come off of that, but mm -hmm. I have, I have a heart for all artists. Uh, I think that usually <laughs> comes across, um, uh, probably because I want to be one, right? And so I've always been trying to figure out how to solve that picture, how to solve that problem, because there are so many great, I know so many great artists, Joe Thompson, yourself, Lee McCormick, uh, um, Tom Serzak, Adam Yunt, I mean, it, Shad Blair, Michael O'Neill, you mm. know, it, the list goes on and on and on, you know, and, and I named off you know, seven or eight people right there. And there's 50 of them I've, I've forgotten to mention because, mm -hmm. and they all have these brilliant stuff. And I always, I always, I always worry that the next generation is not going to have the Bob Dylan and the Steve Earle and the Bruce Springsteen because they're just lost in this sea of everything. There's, mm -hmm. there's no way to find them. And that scares me um, because I don't know what I would have done with, without uh, Bob Dylan's songs. I don't know mm -hmm. what I would have done without Steve Earle's songs, you know, and when you look at the kismet that it took, uh, you know, the sheer luck it, that it took for those albums and those songs just to make it to my ears, I fear that with top 40 being what it is, the next generation is not going to really be able to sink their teeth into songs the way that we did. Uh, I mm. really, I, I'm concerned about that. And I think you can see it in the music industry now. I, I guess what I'm saying is I fear for the future of, of music because I don't know that, that the quality today in is, is what it used to be because there is no quality control. Anybody can make mm -hmm. an album and that's, that's a, both a good and a bad thing. Like you worked with Terry Woods on uh, your mm -hmm. album picture, right? Mm -hmm. And the Pogues, I mean, uh, there's probably some people listening going, who are the Pogues? But I mean, mm -hmm. they're legendary, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and what if, what if people didn't have the ability to be exposed to them? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know, like, uh, I, I'm going to sound, uh, uncharacteristically optimistic here. Um, on one side, as I said, it's, it's a desperate situation that I'm trying to find a way out of in terms of, uh, I've been a musician and living from music since I was 23. So I'm now 40. So I've kind of been playing music for 20 years and my first recording was 15 years ago. Um, now it's not all on the road. I'm all I'm doing is from music, but it's, I, I, I do work jobs within that. I, I play music in hospitals. I, I teach music with kids and stuff like that. And, and so, but it is music related, but to try and earn a living purely from being a recording artist now, you're very, very few and far between who can actually do that. Um, so that situation is, is a bad one. And, and But I do think, going back to your point, pop has always been shit in, in large parts, whether it be in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. It's never been accepted. It was always what happened before was better. And I think for better or worse, us as music hounds, you'll always sniff out a pathway back to the source and that's that's where it becomes interesting and that's where it becomes and i try and you know some students and stuff i try and talk to them about that they're big into ed sheer and people like that and i say do you know what a good exercise to do is do a kind of a musical family tree find out who he was influenced by then go back and listen to them and go back and listen to them and go back and listen to them 
and eventually you'll, you'll find yourself in, in the best of music in the world. And that's, you know, that's kind of how I got into the blues and, and American roots music so much was just, you know, you listen to, you know, it'd be at the Beatles and you start looking back to roll, you know, rock and roll and where that came from and back, you know, Rory Gallagher, him, you know, playing big Bill Brunsey songs, go back and listen, go back to Lead Belly and you start working your way back and, eventually you kind of find a point where you really are in the zone listening to it. Like, as you said, the seventies, great, you know, so many great acts came out of there. But again, if you go from them and follow back, you, you just get led back. And I think that music will always find a way to, to lead people back to where it came from because that it, it has to, you know, it has to go back to that. And, and I think that's where the strength is. And like, you know, people always give out, as you said, there's no good music out today. It's, it's bullshit. There's, more good music now than there ever was it's just harder to find because back in the day if people didn't get on the radio they drifted away and they they stopped making music in a public sphere now people like myself and working jobs and doing that but i'm still able to record because the costs are low enough that i can still do it and i still have the, the stupid stubborn brain in me that says i want to keep doing this you know i keep headbutting that wall and you know i, I i'm going to keep doing it i remember saying with my dad you know kind of they were my parents are very supportive of me when i was doing it you know and i kind of like well i'll go as far as 30 and see how i get on and and then that became 40. And then, of course, I, but I, I read verbatim about three or four years ago about, about J.J. Cale having the same conversation with himself. You know, I'm going to go till I'm, you know, 25. And then it was 35. And then, and then eventually, by the time I got to 40, I didn't know to do anything else. And I just kept playing. And, that, you know, I, I, for, for better or worse, unless, you know, I get my arms chopped off in a shark attack, which is unlikely as well, I'm going to keep trying to do what I do because... As I said, I don't know any other way and I want to do it, whether, it, you know, 10 people hear it or 10,000 people hear it. That's what you try to do. And it's but it is sad that people can't be supported because, you know, art, it was the, 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 this this whole notion. I was thinking, sorry for rambling again, but I was thinking about, the, you know, the patronage kind of system that used to exist and the support for the arts back in medieval times. You know, the Sistine Chapel was painted because of support from a rich pope or some such you know and with the corporations that exist today and the big not just in the record business but outside of that there's got to be some of that money put back into into the arts and to support musicians and to just support artists and support filmmakers and things like that because like no more than again referencing the pandemic if it wasn't for netflix and spotify and things like this during all this lockdown people would really, you know, whether they have AK-47s in the States or sticks over here, we'd have everybody, we'd have a lot more mass murder if art wasn't a thing. If people had no books or art or escapism, the world would have been, you know, <laughs> a hell of a lot worse than it is now. And I really, I really hope we can find some sort of answer to that because, you know, I, 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 I'd love nothing more than to continue doing what I'm doing. Yeah, wouldn't it be great to have a bit of success and a bit of notoriety and a few more people show up to your shows but god damn it if i could just keep playing a few small gigs around ireland and take the occasional trip to europe as i do every year or as i did before pandemic you know and go and play to people who want to listen to music you know i mean all the way if you put a contract in front of me now that says that i can play this many shows a year and have you know 40 people at each of them 
I'd be happy to go there. Could I go to the States and do it? Absolutely, Dave. We'll give you that contract. I'd jump, I'd bite your hand off and, and I wouldn't care one ounce if I ever got played on, on Dave Letterman's show back in the day. Or You know what I mean? All these dreams you have of making it. Making it is actually making it. Making the music. Trying, you know, hoping that it finds some ears and keep putting it out there because what else are we doing with life? We're, we're just a fly buzzing around the light if we just keep working and working and not doing something with that. That's how I feel anyway, because if I did, if I wasn't doing this, I, as I said, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think you hit on a, a real important piece, which is purpose. We need purpose in our lives. And I, I guess it depends on how you define art and so forth. Uh, my definition has always been one of that art is an expression of my soul that I am willing to share with other people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know that there's anything more intimate or better as a connection and i think we all we all crave connection in one form or another in different ways but we all crave some sort of connection and we all find happiness in in purpose i believe and you know if you have never been around live music then it's hard to explain to you what a magical thing live music is mm -hmm. don't get me wrong uh, i'm a huge fan of recorded music but I love live music more than anything else, more than any other art form and so forth. I remember I was lucky uh, to, in, in, to introduce, he was, he was 18 or 19 and he was working with me many years ago. Uh, his name was Kurt and he had never been to a live music show in his entire life. And so I, I said, oh, well, there's this, this folk couple that's come into our little town. Uh, why don't you come? Uh, come and see. I can't remember their name now. They were they, uh, He was blind and, and she was married to him and, and they were this a great folk duo. They, they played um, all over the U.S. And he had never seen a live music show. And that was his first one. And he went away from that and he was blown away. He had no idea that that type of art form really even existed. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I don't know how you're under a rock and, and to a degree that you can't, <laughs> that you haven't done that. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I, I was very blessed. My parents were full-blown hippies. And, you know, my, my first concert was Richie Havens when I was six months old on a, on a lawn, right? Cool. So That's cool. it's, you know, it's different for me than it was for him. But just being able to see him light up and have that magical, intimate, if I was going to believe in God, that's where I would do it, is, is right there. And, and that's what I tell people about Camp Copperhead. It's like uh, Muhammad going to the mountain. That's, that's <laughs> what it is. It's that kind of experience. Uh, I, I want to take a minute and talk a little bit about your work with kids at hospitals, because mm. that is one of my favorite things to, to, you know, I follow you on Facebook and try to keep in touch over the years, of course. But this one of my favorite things to see is that you're, uh, especially before the pandemic and before uh, we were all quarantined or locked down or whatever the case may be in our particular country i loved watching watching you have all of these different things where you where you're going in and playing music for kids uh that's that's just amazing how, how did you get hooked up with doing that how did you go about it uh and tell me just a little bit about your experience doing it you know ramble yeah. if you will okay, okay well, like i can and i will don't worry <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i have to say it, it's been one of the the best things that's ever happened to me in my life for sure and you know it's music related yeah i've always i've always i suppose had a knack to be be able to be comfortable and be myself and as i said i really enjoyed doing the the as i referenced earlier the um the, the school of rock thing relating to teenagers trying to draw the music out of them and 
I suppose that kind of, you know, as you said, as a songwriter, your empathy is the, is, is the biggest skill you have. And I, and I guess I that that kind of lent itself to the work that I, I now do with, with the organization. It's called Kids Classics. Um, but how it, how it began um, randomly was um, my second cousin, Grania Hope, um, who's the, the leader of, of, of the organization. Um, she's a, a classical cellist, a fantastic musician. It started with her doing her Erasmus year, I think her master's or Erasmus, in Pittsburgh in the United States. And as part of her course over there and finishing her studies, she had to do a music in the community section. And so she ended up playing in a kind of a, an old folks home and playing some music for them. And she kind of came back to Ireland with that idea in her head, because before that, there was music therapy here and people, you know, volunteering, playing music in hospitals and stuff. But actual musicians in hospitals and healthcare settings hasn't it still isn't a thing really in ireland we're the first national group doing it here and there's only six of us involved um but she came back and decided that she'd go to france to train with a, an organization called music asante and in france and in the uk and in america music in, in hospitals and things is, is quite a, an established therapy or, and therapy is the wrong word but established practice to help within the hospital settings and she went and trained there and became a trainer and came back to Ireland and like I wouldn't have known Grania terribly well growing up um, as I said the second cousin of mine my dad's first cousin's daughter basically and so we kind of meet at the occasional funeral every 10-15 years and that's how it started it was her grandmother had passed away and myself and my dad went to the funeral and we got we just got talking and Grania is great fun, very good to talk to. And she's a twin sister, Sinead, and the three of us are sitting there talking. And obviously, you know, the same way as I'm talking, you know, just kind of a slightly bubbly character. And she kind of went, I wonder, would he be any good being involved in music and healthcare? So she, she suggested this training course that she was doing a couple of weeks later. And I said, yeah, sure. Look, I'm up for doing anything. And I went along and that's, that's where it started. And just, I trained with her and kind of learned we do um, both in, in geriatric settings as well as pediatric settings. So it's kind of a lot of the focus you're seeing would be on the children's hospitals, but we do it in the old folks homes as well. And that's where I first trained was in an old folks home in, in the east of the country. And um, yeah, it's, it's I think it's seven years ago now that I started. It's been the most incredible journey. It's very hard work at times. But it's the most joyous thing you can do. As I always joke, it, it, my karmic levels are through the roof. I can I can go around punching children with impunity in the street because I've just been in the cancer ward playing. You know, the, this, I'm joking. Of you know what I mean. But uh, it's it's fantastic. Like as I said, you know, I've had the most powerful musical moments of my life beside a hospital bed rather than on a stage. You know, don't get me wrong, playing on stage and playing in front of an appreciative listening audience is just about as good as it can get. But when that person is in a bed and you know possibly dying and you're bringing a smile to their face by playing twinkle twinkle a star that tops it and and, and it's amazing or you know I, i've had I could, I could list off hundreds of examples here but like even with alzheimer's patients who don't know their daughter's name who's sitting right beside them but yet they start singing a song that they remember from their childhood and they can sing every word because the music just draws it out of them and it's yeah, it's been one of the biggest, as I said, privileges of my life to be involved in it. And I hope I can continue to do it. We've been attempting to do it digitally like this on Zoom and and, and it works to a degree. It's not, you know, it's it's not that human connection that you're used to, but it, it's it's still nice to be able to get in and, and see the, the people you've met before and some you haven't. And um, 
yeah, I'm really, along with not touring and, and gigging, um, really, really missing those visits to, uh, to, to places. Like I was thinking about my own grandmother the other day. We were a couple of hours out the road here in West Clare. We went to a nursing home and because of the COVID restrictions, we're not allowed to go in. So we had to play outside into the nursing home. And, you know, Ireland is Ireland. It rains all the time and it's yeah. November. And I was thinking I was outside and it was a nice day, but it was still raining. Uh, you know, you're, you're talking about six degrees and rain. And I was thinking my grandmother, she could see me now. She'd be kind of, you know, I, you you want your head examined, young man. You know, <laughs> like, But at the same time, it was fantastic to see the nurses, you know, jiving with some old man in his wheelchair, you know. And it's just like you, you don't care how long, how cold your fingers are, how wet your guitar is. You just keep going because of what's going on there. And that's the beauty of it. It's, it's you leave your ego at the door, you leave everything there and you go in and you bring music. And it's like you were talking about with the teenage songs that you listen to, those things you grab onto. Music just has that power to give you that hug and that reassurance and bring people together. And yeah, I couldn't I couldn't speak highly enough of the work and how lucky I am to be involved in it, I really am. And it's paid work as well, which is amazing. So it's like, you know, it's even better, you know. <laughs> that's wonderful. I didn't I didn't realize it was paid work. That I mean yeah. that's really great. That, yeah. Uh, that it can provide sustenance in both directions, if you if you will. It is amazing, yeah. And I, it's sad that we have to say that because, like, as I said, I know volunteering and bringing those, to, you know, that that's still a very valid exercise and, and volunteering your time is a good thing to do, but also recognizing the professionalism and the skill that's involved because not everybody is suited to go and do the job. You know, I know I know a lot of musicians that I wouldn't let near a hospital bed because you have to do a lot of ethics training. You have to do a lot of hygiene training, you know, hand hygiene, all these kind of things. And, you know, no more than somebody who spends the time to, to practice the guitar well enough to be able to play something very well and sing a song, they should be recognized and, and not feel guilty about looking for money for it. It's supported by the government and it's supported by charitable donations and things like that, but it should be supported because it validates it, it makes it real. I think we're we're all very guilty as musicians and artists that we kind of, you know, you, you, the, talking about money is terrible and you don't want to be talking about it because it's a dirty word and you're seen as some sort of, well, you know, why should we pay you? But like, we should because we pour, put heart and soul and, and energy and professionalism into it as much as any other profession does, you know? There's, Sorry. there's, I think there's no question about, there shouldn't be any question about that. I think, I think mm -hmm. you're right. People should be paid what they're worth, not what they're worth as mm -hmm. a human being. No one can pay you that much, uh, but people should be paid for what they're, the value that they bring to the world. Like you mentioned earlier during this, this whole COVID experience, uh, where would we be without the movies and without the music and without the podcasts, yeah. without those things, uh, to help us through. You know, and there's not as much focus. That's one of the things that I'm most sad about here in the U.S. is that we have gone from supporting the arts as a necessary piece, just like science and mm -hmm. and education and, and literature and English. And, mm -hmm. you know, those are all important pieces. But somewhere along the way, we thought, oh, well, what makes us the most money? What's that makes it the most valid? And that's not at all true, not in any way, shape or yeah. form. Being an artist is not less valid than being a scientist. 
you know, those things should work hand in hand. But mm-hmm. here in the United States, we cut music programs. We cut shop programs. Uh, you know, we, we cut programs that are not based on science and arithmetic and, and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. English. And that is killing us. And, and we don't realize that until we get to down the road. And then we're yeah. like, wait a minute. But that's that's the, that's the point, isn't it? I think it speaks to a bigger problem in society in general when you you think about the whole economic system and the structure that's inherent upon it. And and we're we're coming to kind of a, you know we're coming to a kind of a point in the road where it, it's going to come to a head in some way. I'm reading an interesting book at the minute called Utopia for Realists. Uh, I highly recommend it. It talks about a lot about universal basic income and things like that, and and how the monetary system is head set up, but. Um, if the value isn't put on it, for example, as you said, if the tap had been turned off on cultural inputs to our lives during the pandemic, if somehow that tap had been turned off and there was no Netflix, there was no radio, there was no music, there was none of these things, people would then realize how valuable it is, how fundamental it is to life, how to existence for the vast, vast majority of people some form of art like that is invaluable. I think it's it's inherent in all of us, some more so than others. But the point is that if we don't put a value on it, it's going to be eroded. And the, the whole streaming thing now is, 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 is kind of going back a little bit on what we were talking about a little while ago. But I'm, I'm really upset that some more big artists haven't really tackled it and come out in support of of the system rage against the machine you know what i mean not the band but i mean raging against the machine because trying to convince the general public to do away with netflix or spotify as concepts and ease of use like i listen to apple music i love the fact that i can google something that randomly comes into my head and i have it instantly there it's fantastic the service is unbelievable but the fact that it doesn't pay anything to artists below a certain level and that the record companies are making this massive chunk of money at the top, it's just scandalous. You know, back in the day when, as you said, like Bob Dylan wouldn't have had a record contract only for the fact that, um, what was his name who discovered him? John, oh, come on. Damn it, I should know this. Well, yeah, and so should I. Being, yeah. uh, but he, he, it was it was his folly. That's what they called it. Recording mm-hmm. Bob Dylan was this folly because they had the money from other artists on their label. That's how it worked. There was a trickle down economics. This word you hear the whole time that doesn't actually exist anymore. But in record industry back in the sixties and seventies, there was development deals. There was things handed out like that. There was it existed as supports. Okay, lucky lucky few people got them, but they still they still existed. Whereas now. Everybody, you know, yes, I can have my music all over Spotify, but what good is it to me? When we were growing up, I, I, I came across this phrase recently, and I, I don't know, do you, are you familiar with an actor called Steve Coogan? Um, mm-hmm. He's an in- English actor, and he pl- plays a character called Alan Partridge, but he's been in a lot of different Hollywood movies and things like that. But he was talking about when he grew up in the 70s in, in the UK, 70s and 80s, and how there was four television channels. And... You know, when we when I grew up in the 80s and the 90s in Ireland, we had two television channels. And if you were lucky to live in a certain part of the country where you could get the BBC, you got the BBC. If you didn't, you had just two Irish channels. And what he was talking about was that if you were a child and you sat down to watch the television from one end of the day to the other, as a child in the 1970s and the 1980s, you had to be exposed to programming that wasn't designed for you. So you might have been able to watch a certain amount of cartoons or 
teenage programs, but you were also had to watch current affairs programs, nature programs, sport programs, political programs, movies, television, culture, light entertainment. You were exposed to a gambit of that. And sure, you same in the States, you probably had a lot more channels, but you still had to you, you had to watch programs. You had to watch adverts. You had to watch things like that. Whereas now, if somebody wanted to, they could, you know, I, I think about my, my niece, nieces who are young, you know, 13, 14. And I remember thinking about them at the time going, if they wanted to, they could sit there and watch Friends 24 hours a day on Netflix, or they could watch whatever they wanted. And he was making this point that you can sit down and either watch documentaries to your heart's content all day, or you could watch those mind numbing dross that you've ever watched from nine o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night. And he said he, the phrase he used was it amounted to cultural diabetes. And it's a very, very good phrase, cultural diabetes, because people then aren't exposed to the wider thing. And with music, it's like that. You know, you've got all these algorithms now that are just if you're going into Spotify, you might like this, you might like this. Yes, it can lead to good discovery, but it can also really narrow your focus. So instead of like listening to jazz or classical music or, you know, bluegrass, you don't end up, you, you, you stay in this little world of, okay, we're going to listen to rock music or we're going to listen to this. And those kind of things are dangerous. No more than you were talking about it along with the, 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 the left and right and the political thing, you know, and the way algorithms are set up on Facebook and Twitter to give you this feedback loop of people you're in. It's, it's, it's insidious and it's hard, you know, and it's, it's, it's so hard to know how to break out of that as, as a musician or how to, can you utilize it? Can you fight against it? And if you're a small musician, you can't, or a small artist, you can't. And that's why I'm kind of disappointed that somebody like a Bruce Springsteen hasn't kind of gone, let's try and do something like this. I know Neil Young tried to do something with his streaming service, like, but it's just, it never seems to gather any sort of momentum. And I, I, it's going to come to a head in the next couple of years. You know, it has to, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm with you on that. I don't subscribe to any, I've made it as a personal thing for me. Mm -hmm. I, I don't subscribe to any of the mu musical streaming services yeah. because I have so many friends who are artists that don't get paid. And yeah. so uh, if I can't buy it in some form or fashion, then I'm, I'm not going to do it because... Uh, you know, how, how for, and this is just a personal choice and I'm, I'm not bashing anybody for their choices. I understand yeah. the convenience. I get it. But if I'm going to listen to one of your songs, I, I want, I want to pay you for it because I understand the value of that. Uh, yeah. I, I really do. Um, you know, I, it irritates me that, uh, your music, uh, I, I went to try to get some of your music digitally off of iTunes, yeah. but because I'm in the U S it wouldn't let me buy it because I, it would only let me buy it from the Ireland iTunes. Okay. Weird. Random. Right. Random. Um, and I've run into that before. And so for me, it's very frustrating. Uh, I think there, there may be some, some ways around it, but I think what's, what's going to ultimately end up happening. This is, this is my guess. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Yeah. Uh, I think what's going to end up happening is the music itself is going to end up being a lost leader for connection with artists. Uh, I think that that's really where the, the next generation of this is going to be. Uh, and we see something similar to that with Patreon and things like mm -hmm. that, where people support artists, uh, but they don't necessarily support them just for their music. They, they have other packages and things that are sold. Yeah, and that's yeah. because we don't protect the music. Uh, you know, it's the only intellectual property that we don't protect. And that's uh, a real, a real shame because it's an incredibly valuable art form. Yeah. But this is, it's, it is, it is the problem. Like, 
Previously, as I said, back in the day, people went on tour and the album sales cut, made up for the tour because it was a big, massive loss. You know, I'm talking thing about the Stones and things like that back in the 70s, you know, whereas that flipped in the 90s and it became that the music, the, the album meant nothing. It was only to support the tour. And like, if you were lucky enough to have an audience, you still, you could put out music and it didn't matter if you sold a ton or whatever, you could tour and make money that way. But until the pandemic hit and then it just brought everything to a crushing stop and everyone went oh fuck we're now in the, the same problem and okay everybody is, is scrambling like i did and everything else to figure out how to do live streams and how to do that and yeah you're 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 correct like i've done several live streams i haven't done one in a couple of months now but you know on facebook and yes it's nice to play songs but it wasn't about that it was about the connection and getting the messages from people i i've met in switzerland and germany and that that connection but it still robs you of that being in a room listening to a gig and that's something you can't replace and and, and like and, and also we can't we can't put the genie back in the bottle with regards to streaming services i'm I, as I said, I'm totally hypocritical i use one but if it's not funded properly or supported if those big companies like apple can't give stipends back to musicians and help support and foster everything along because they're making millions upon millions upon millions of dollars based on the hard work of you know Spotify to have the gall to go and pay Joe Rogan how many million for a contract don't get me wrong Joe Rogan's entertaining in his podcast and he he's got an agent who's getting in the best deal he can but it just goes to show you that Spotify are now introducing algorithms if you take less of zero 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 one cent on your revenue if you take even more zeros we'll promote your music now this is what they're purporting lately and it's just like <laughs> how, how can these people in conscience do it you know what i mean because artists don't stick up for themselves you know that's the problem yeah and that's that's a good point too because it, it, it's the it's the whole thing is that in a traditional work environment you could put a union together and yeah. that union wouldn't cross the line but mm -hmm. artists will slit each other's throats to get the publicity to do to to maybe have that chance at being the next big thing yeah. now, you know if we could just all get the artists together and be like look nobody does anything until we're paid correctly yeah. you know in la a number of years ago there was a writer strike yeah. and the writers said we're not writing any more tv or movie or anything until yeah. we're paid correctly mm -hmm. and the actors got behind them and said we're not acting until you do that and they yeah. were able to solidify some sort of you know reciprocity with the the big companies mm -hmm. um, but you know i've I've known too many artists <laughs> over the years uh, yeah. where they just, you know, well, yeah, maybe you're picketing, but if they're going to give me an opportunity, this might be my only chance, you know, and that's part yeah. of the challenge because artists, especially in music, although I'm just, I'm kind of speaking out of my ass because uh, I'm sure it's true in other uh, art forms as well. Music's just the one that's closest to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they'll do anything to get uh, to to get a shot and it, it you know it doesn't matter who who hurt gets hurt in the process but it hurts all of us you know mm -hmm. in in the process i say all of us but i mean every all of the artists that are putting out things and trying to yeah. make a living doing it to your point if you look at da vinci he was supported by the church he was more than a millionaire in his time yeah. he was supported very well uh and we've kind of gotten away from supporting uh, the people that produce that art i think you're right we should really get back to that yeah, like it's we've been lucky in Ireland insofar as we, we have gotten, you know, some 
benefits from the state during the pandemic. And it has been refreshing to be able to have some money coming in and, and still be able to like, I've, I've been doing a digital marketing course. I've been learning how to do video editing. I'm not very good at it, but I'm still trying and you still do all these things. And you spend your day learning how to do something new online. You spend your day practicing guitar and it's been great use of my time in, in, in that way. I've, I've really enjoyed it in that sense. And as I, as I said, you're not having to worry necessarily. Okay. You're still worrying about what's happening next year and what's going to happen when that safety net gets taken away. But the fact that you have a safety net is a fantastic thing that you can actually go, I'm, I'm going to try and focus on art and work on it and have that luxury. And like, you can't, it can't all be luxury. It has to have some struggle to make your art and do it because that's, that's the rub. You have to have the, some kind of conflict in order to get there with it, you know, but uh, they have, they have drawn a proposal here in Ireland and it, it is to try and see, can they give, um, you know, I think it was 300 euros a week to the artists and musicians and see can they bring it in as 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 a kind of a, a thing going into the future that people would be paid that and then you know be able to actually create their art and go out and gig and stuff like that but i i can't see it happening we're not a rich enough country to make it happen and i i don't know there's too many the problem with ireland is there's, there's so many people who are musicians and artists that per capita i i don't know i think in the world i don't think there's anybody in, anywhere per capita that has a higher spread of, of people who could claim to be artists <laughs> whether rightly or wrongly you know <laughs> Well, I want to be cognizant of your time. Uh, you've been no, very generous uh, with us away here. today. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, Blind Leading the Blind. I, that was a, a video that you kind of put out on, on Facebook. Just another one of those tunes of yours that is just, you can really feel you know, what's going on. Uh, my understanding was, is that it was kind of one of your takes on the lockdown and kind of the COVID response and so forth. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that song? Yeah, well, it was it was just that the blind leading the blind, I suppose, and the fact that you know, back in March and now again, you know, that separation from my girlfriend and things like that. Just that you know, the lack of human contact, and also the kind of the headlessness which everything around you seems to be dealing with. The blind leading the blind, you know, it's an old phrase, but it's true. You know, if you watch too much news or listening to it, it just was ebbing away at, at my soul in particular, and you know. When you don't have those, you know, your partner to kind of be with and, and kind of in any meaningful way, or that connection, physical connection, just even to hug somebody, you know what I mean? And it's, it's these fundamental things that are, are kind of, we, we've taken so much for granted, but when they're taken away from you, it's hard work, you know, and I suppose it's just a little song about that. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a nice one. And I, I kind of it was one of the first ones I'd written in a good while because I kind of have this strange process of until a project is finished, I don't really start writing again. And I'm just at the tail end of mixing a new album. So I kind of hadn't written much before that. I went into the studio last July, July. What, what year is it now? 2020. 2020, 2020 I think. 2020, yeah. Well, my, my dad passed away in, in uh, 2018 and um, I went into the studio in 2019 and in July and then again in October and earlier on this year in February, I finished the recording of that album. And that was a really heavy process, um, very, very taxing kind of um, sessions in the studio. Just a lot of the subject matter was dealing with that loss and, 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 and that whole thing. 
I know it's it is, believe it or not, this is probably the, the the least chirpy album that I've released to date. So it's going to be you know, <laughs> come back to the dark depression and stuff. But it was fantastic in in a way. Um, a great group of people in the studio with me, and we recorded lots of it live. Um, so it's got a very very cool atmosphere on the whole thing. But I I hadn't written much up until lockdown because I hadn't stopped enough to think. I was making a plan about getting this out and finishing. And as I said, I, I kind of have this strange kind of subconscious thing that when the final day of mixing happens and it's mastered, then that's done. I start thinking about the next project and I, my brain doesn't allow me to write beyond that. So lockdown stopped that process and I started doing a little bit of writing and I, I wrote the uh, In the Same Boat Blues and I wrote that one um, Blind Leading the Blind in the same day or two days or whatever it was. And I've been writing little bits and pieces since and, you know, as I said, it's like gathering little bits of sweeping the floor and picking out little shiny things and keeping them in my pocket and see where they go. Well, now that you mentioned you've got a new album coming out, I, I have to ask <laughs> about that. I, uh, when, when is that one coming out? Is it this year We're going to in a big feedback loop of, <laughs> of, of what to do with the music industry. Well, I, I yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to try something different this time. Um, I've never had any, you know, all, all of my albums, all, I say all of my albums, it's hilarious. You know, these, somebody who's recorded five albums and, you know, I, I have no business recording albums, but I, I did, I, I, you know, I get, you get, you get down on yourself as a musician and, 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 and as a, a writer and things like that, and you kind of go, I, I'm not very prolific and I, I don't have an album out every year or every 18 months. And you kind of, you know, this pressure you apply to yourself. And I stopped and thought about it the other day. And, and my first recording was, well, my first recording was in a four track in an apartment in London called the drama of my pants. I recorded it exclusively in my underpants, but <laughs> nobody ever hears that. But my first actual recording was in 2005 release. And um, I had an album out in 2007 and I had two EPs and then I had another album in 2013 and I had another album in 2017 and now I have another one in 2020. And all of them have been self-funded and as such, until you have enough money to put together an album, you don't have an album. And I kind of, I probably would have had another album out if I could have afforded to it, to have it out there. But um, my problem has always been that by the time you finish paying for an album and actually have a physical product in your hand, you don't have any money to market it and actually properly push it out there or have have a record company behind you will give you a great push and um my i suppose my most successful release today has been my album scarecrow which was released in ireland in 2013 and i think it was released around 2015 in germany and switzerland and actually that delay helped because we had all the the stuff together and it got a nice bit of airplay in switzerland and germany and nice kind of sales at gigs over there and it was brilliant and we kind of went this is this is cool um and tough love which was my last album in 2017 got delayed a little bit in manufacture and we had a german publisher and promoter on board and we were all geared up for release in march 2017 and we still hadn't got the album back by january 2017 so all the kind of pre work towards the release never happened and as such when the release it came out suddenly the album was out but to the sound of one hand clapping um it didn't get that boost of being the album of the week on the national broadcaster and you know one thing led to another and 
as as a consequence, once the album was out there, it has only a certain lifestyle lifetime that you can promote it for. Maybe you know a year, maybe eighteen months, and then it's gone. And that's that's how it feels. I know it exists forever, and people can always go back and listen to it. But in terms of promotion, okay, I, I'm I'm now flogging my Christmas song again. Uh, my my only non-depressing song. I, I've just re-released it here in Ireland just for the crack um, to put it out there and hopefully make some money out of it again. But uh, it's a Christmas song, so I'm allowed to do that every year or try and peddle this nonsense of me dressed as a plum pudding. The new album, this is the point I was getting back to. So the new album is finished now, nearly. I've got two tracks to get finalized mixes on. I was hoping to have it mastered by the end of the year. It'll probably be January now at this stage. And I'd like to hopefully have the artwork wrapped up and it manufactured physically on vinyl and some um, CDs by March. And then I'm not going to release it for a year. So that's my plan. And the reason I want to do that is because I want to try and my, my thinking on it, and I could be proved wrong in this, but I've, I, I've been proved right in my previous releases that you put an album out there and maybe you get some attention, maybe you don't. But what I'm going to try and do is I worked a long time and long, hard time on these songs, and I, I hope they can find some ears. That's all I want. It's not about, you know, trying to make people like me. I just love the songs and the work we've done in the studio to actually people go, yeah, that, that sounds like they did something with it, you know, and hopefully they like it. Hopefully they enjoy it. But people's attention spans, as you know, on, on Facebook, on Twitter and things like that, it's, it's gone. It's gone. If it doesn't engage them quickly, you know, you listen to 10 seconds of a track, you're gone. You know, I'm guilty of that, too. And, you know, I, 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 I do the same thing. I see people posting stuff. You, 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 you click on it, you go, you're gone. And as such, what I want to try and do is March next year, we release a track and try and promote that track for three months and then leave a month go by and release another track and try and maybe before the release of the album have released five or six songs from the album. And then when I come to release the album, I've already had that bit of work done and then release the album and try and get another two years out of it by putting it slowly and then as i said hopefully in the meantime get back into the studio next year to have some more stuff ready to go so there's not a, a big dip in the middle so i'm going to just try and take it a little bit more slowly and as i said yeah i i'm really really happy with the album as i said it was hard work and yeah it was a tough subject matter at times you know going in and, and writing songs about losing my dad in, in, in part and um but yeah i think i think he'd be proud of it and uh, i am and I really, really, really am looking forward to you hearing it and others hearing it and, and some of the tracks from it. Um, it it's, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I, I had a great group of guys in the studio. The, the engineer and producer is a guy called Christian Best. Uh, he's a, an amazing drummer as well, which is part of the experience. He was drumming on the album as well as producing. Um, he's, he's worked extensively with a guy called Mick Flannery, who if you haven't heard of, check him out. He's a fantastic Irish singer-songwriter. One of my... Favourite musician, Steffi Hess, who's a double bass player from Switzerland. Um, I mentioned my friend Toby earlier on. He's Toby's fiance, and, and she's a great energy and a fantastic musician and a double bass player. So she came over from Switzerland and uh, Toby went fishing while she came into the studio. So it was myself herself, a young guitarist by the name of Keelan Kenny. He's 24 and he plays like he's 204 in terms of his maturity level in the guitar. You're just going to look at this guy going you prick you know i hate you. i hate you i think that's like every every time i met him for the first two years i i'd kind of known him on stage i just went up and i went i hate you you know but he he's an amazing guitar it's not flashy it's not he can play at a million miles an hour but it's just the sounds and tones he can get i i wouldn't be able to do it in a million years as a guitarist but it was great to be able to work with those those people in the studio and kind of 
record the, the core of the album live because we really got a, a lot of texture in there. And I, I hope, as I said, you you wipe their arse and you send them off out into the world and hope your your, your children find their way, you know. So I'm looking forward to getting getting it out there. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, been, I've been sitting back with it for a long time, but it's going to be a drip feed. And hopefully it'll work. Hopefully it won't be, you know, the drip torture. It'll be, you know, a good good thing. You'd be wanting more, hopefully, you know. Well, I know that I am certainly looking forward <laughs> to it. I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of other people too, and and I will do my best to pimp it out so that uh, that it gets to uh, to as many ears as possible for sure. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today. Thank you for for spending the time and telling us, you know, uh, about the different things that you've that you've had going on and so forth. One thing I do like to try to do at the end of the show mm-hmm. is just uh, let my guest, uh, whoever's on, if they have anything else they'd like to put into the world related to this or not uh, anything like that or if they don't that's fine too I just like to always make sure that I give people a chance to have their voice in this world and you know that's the the one thing I can do on this platform is <laughs> is, is tell people you know if you have something you want to say here you go uh, and you can say it so if there's anything you'd like to finish up with then we'll do that uh, otherwise we'll call it a good one well, I, I've nothing, nothing to say but thanks, and uh, thanks to you and and your kind insofar as somebody who's taken the time to, to you know to talk to people like me, and talk to artists and musicians and fr- and friends, you know, and people who are you know as you said just ordinary people trying to do do what they're doing. It's great to have your passion and and energy, and uh, thank you, Elliot. <laughs> All right, thanks, Dave. Wasn't that a great conversation? I really enjoyed his perspective on a number of topics, like how he recommends to his music students to make a musical family tree of their favorite artists' musical influences so that they can suss out more great music and ideas. I love hearing him talk about supporting those who need it most, especially the children in the hospitals and the elderly uh, folks in convalescent homes. I mean, talk about being part of a solution. Man, thank you again, David, for all you do. Now, Dragons, please go to the show notes and check out the work David is doing. And buy some things if you can, or donate to one of the causes he supports. Check out his live streams. He does them on Facebook fairly frequently. And of course, like he mentioned, he has a Christmas single out. uh, And you can uh, purchase that and support him that way as well if you like. If you do that, if you check out his stuff, you'll thank yourself for doing it because it's just such a great listen all the way around. Uh, also, why don't you go ahead and go listen to his tune, Someone Else's Mind. You can find links to it in the show notes. Uh, and then if you want to, email me your favorite lyric or tell me how it impacted you. Uh, I would tell you mine, but each line is such a work of art building to a masterpiece that it needs to be heard to do it justice, in my opinion. It was a great conversation. I'm so glad we had it. Okay, dragons, as always, please remember, you might be plain. And you might be ordinary, but you're a dragon and you can do amazing things. And we can't wait to hear your voice in this world that so badly needs it. 